This is the Washington Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. 45th LD Senator Monka Dingra is chair of the Senate Law and Justice Committee, deputy majority leader of the state Senate, and a 20-year senior deputy King County prosecutor. And she's recently announced her candidacy for Washington State Attorney General to replace outgoing AG Bob Ferguson. She's also a good friend of the show and a frequent guest. We're so excited to have her here today. Monka Dingra, hello. How are you? I am good. It is so great to be here with all of you, and I'm so excited to have this conversation. Same, for sure. So, you know, it's early days in the campaign, but how are things going so far? You know, things are going really well. I've been really fortunate that so many of my colleagues um, up and down our state, across our state, have endorsed my candidacy for attorney general. Um, You know, I feel like it's a very natural next step for me. And it's wonderful when I hear that from other people all across the state as well, that they see me in this role, they're excited for this campaign. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, if you go on the website, you'll see the number of people who have endorsed you and it is formidable. So you definitely have momentum there. You know, you say it's a natural fit. I mean, you have experience with the law, both as a prosecutor and, as I mentioned, the the Senate Law and Justice Committee. Um, Was that ultimately what made you throw your hat in the ring for this? You know, um, there were multiple reasons. Um, One is a very wonky policy um, goal that we will talk about, I'm sure. But, you know, the um, others really is I've spent my entire life basically from the time I was in college with my volunteer work and with uh, the nonprofit work and everything that I've done is really the standing up for people who don't have a voice in our state. Um, you know, fighting for justice, making sure that I'm actually delivering on issues that help improve people's lives. And those are the things that really drove me to um, run for this position. I'm very excited about what this office can do, as so many of um, the people who listen to your show know, that I went to my first Democratic Party meeting the December after Trump got elected. Um, That really is what drove me to get off the sidelines and get involved. And I see this as that natural progression, really making sure we're strengthening our state against what's coming at us from our U.S. Supreme Court, really taking a look even at the way our state agencies are delivering services. This is the wonky part of this job that I'm very excited about. Our attorney general's office actually represents every state agency in the state. Most people don't know that. And I am actually very excited about that component of it because people in Washington expect government to show up for them um, and to provide them resources and services and support. And we have to update the manner in which the legal interpretation of our laws um, help our agencies to deliver on those services. You know, you mentioned you've been at this for uh, six and a half years. It was when you kind of got started and and you've really established yourself as such an effective progressive Democrat in the Senate during that time. I wonder if you could just talk briefly about the importance of having uh, such a strong progressive in the position of attorney general. You know, what's very critical is making sure that we're leading with, with our values, right? What is the purpose um, of this of this position? And to me, a lot of it is showing up with honesty and integrity and compassion and really with that goal of strengthening our communities. And I think when you lead with your values, you get good results. And that's what I've seen even 
in the Senate. Um, and that's what I hope to see at the Attorney General's office as well. And I think the reason why I have been so effective is because to me, it's always about the policy, not the politics. I know the politics are important, but it is about the policy. Let's be data driven. Let's make sure we're taking care of people and we're putting people first. Um, and then if you focus on that, I think we do get the results that we all want. Values informing policy. I like that very much. And I do want to talk about the the number of duties that the attorney general has, not least of which is recommending legislation to the state legislature. Obviously, you have many great uh, relationships to draw on there. But part of the job of AG is to represent the state before the state, the, the Supreme Court. So I want to talk briefly about protections for Washingtonians, particularly in light of this Supreme Court. You know, after the Dobbs ruling, a number of legal experts have expressed concerns about threats to to other 14th Amendment privacy protections, things like marriage equality, even contraception. How are you thinking about this threat? So this is where it's actually critical um, that we have an attorney general who is very collaborative, works with our legislature, with the governor's office, because in our legislature, actually, we since we took the majority, we have done everything legislatively we can in order to show up those rights and protections for Washingtonians. But then there are things that are happening that we cannot anticipate, like um, the lawsuit on the abortion pill. And we were very fortunate that Bob Ferguson made sure that we had a lawsuit in, in Washington that makes it more accessible. But you take that into, um, you have to coordinate that with what the governor's office is doing and what the legislature did. And what we did was have the Department of Correction actually purchase three uh, years worth of the abortion pill because they have the authority to do so and to distribute it. And so many times when we are faced with things that are unexpected, you need to have someone who knows how the legislature works, who has a good relationship with the governor's office, and can really collaborate to make sure we have a statewide strategy on how we're going to address these issues. So we always have to be prepared and ready to act collaboratively. But um, I'll, I'll just say, I think our legislation has, legislature has done a great job in making sure that we in Washington are protected and not just protected. We've gone above and beyond. Um, I was so proud to sponsor My Health, My Data this year, which is actually a first in the nation data privacy law when it comes to taking a look at how companies collect information, how they make, um, you know, how they, how they reach conclusions about someone's private health based on our purchases and then their ability to sell that data. And so I've been very proud of that legislation. Again, it ties in very nicely with the Attorney General's office because that's all Consumer Protection Act. And we have to make sure that uh, Attorney General's office is being extremely proactive when it comes to protecting consumers. And I'm just gonna go off on a tangent and say many times what happens is that people who have last names like mine are targeted in a way that people that have last names like yours aren't. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people of color in the immigrant community simply don't know and don't understand what the attorney general's office can do. So I think there's a lot more we can do in consumer protection around uh, reproductive rights, around gender affirming care, but also in general when it comes to other marginalized communities. 
There is so much that is on the horizon. Of course, all this is very, very fluid. You know, I, I mentioned the 14th Amendment, uh, privacy protections. Uh, the Supreme Court is also expected to rule on whether businesses can deny service to LGBTQ people under the First Amendment. There's, uh, they may also rule to make it easier for non-Native families to adopt Native American children, something that has a terrible history in this country. And so uh, what you're talking about in terms of incorporating the legislature, I think, is enormously uh, important and you know, ultimately very reassuring, particularly in light of the track record, I think, that the attorney general has, as you mentioned, with the state legislature. On the subject of abortion, I, there's something specific I wanted to ask you about here. This is the rise of so-called crisis pregnancy centers. So these are often sham organizations that ultimately are trying to prevent people from, from seeking abortions. They are not health care providers. They don't have to comply with HIPAA. They can share data. I'll just ask you, what are your thoughts on these and what can be done to protect people from them? So, you know, these centers are so insidious and something that I have been looking at for years to trying to figure out how we can get at them. And I'm very proud to say my uh, bill, my health, my data actually gets at them because it is about um, health data that is not HIPAA protected. Because as so many of us know that these pregnancy centers are not medical um, organizations. And so HIPAA doesn't apply, but this bill that we passed this session it applies to them. They cannot collect um, healthcare data without your consent. You have a right now to ask that that information be deleted if you inadvertently give them access to collect it. They cannot sell that information without your consent. And so this really, this bill really is a way to target exactly those crisis pregnancy centers that so many of us have um, so many concerns with. And so this is where it comes down to enforcement, right? Because we can pass all the great bills we want, but if they're not being implemented in the manner as intended and there's no enforceability, it's meaningless. So on this bill specifically, I don't know if you followed it closely enough, but in the House, they removed the private right of action. And in the Senate, when it came to the Law and Justice Committee, I, of course, made sure we amended the bill back to put in that private right of action so that people can go and protect the information at the crisis pregnancy centers. Without that, we would not have been able to get to the crisis pregnancy centers that uh, we wanted to. So um, I'm very excited about the law in the state of Washington, and we'll have to make sure that it is being implemented in the manner as intended. You know, you bring up enforcement, and I, I think this is something that a lot of people got a crash course on, particularly after some of the uh, the law enforcement legislation of the previous session passed, and uh, the attorney general was put in the position of having to take action uh, in certain instances on, uh, you know, law enforcement organizations that refused to comply. How do you see the role of enforcement vis-a-vis uh, -vis the attorney general? You know, the um, the attorney general's office is a, is the attorney for the state of Washington. And enforcement is a huge component of that. And I think that is something we have to take very seriously. And enforcement in terms of what's happening outside our state, but also what's happening within the state. And I think this is where my background as a prosecutor is extremely helpful. I've had a long history of working with law enforcement agencies. I've done a lot of work around police accountability in the legislature. And um, as we're getting more and more aware of what is going on with um, police accountability issues and a criminal justice system, 
we have put a lot of emphasis on the attorney general's office. We have um, asked a lot of our agencies. We've asked a lot of uh, CJTC to do that um, training. And, uh, CJTC, uh, can you uh, uh, oh, spell sorry, that out for us? Oh, sorry, Justice Cent- uh, Training Commission. Thank you. The ones that's responsible for making sure we're training our law enforcement officers, making sure that um, if there is a violation of their duty to intervene or duty to report that it is the criminal justice training commission that is looking at those and you know who advises um all of those agencies is the attorney general's office and so being proactive in understanding um that the advice that's given to these agencies has to be consistent with the intent of the law and i can give you a few examples of um places where I do think that the AG's office could have stepped in and uh, done a uh, done a job of kind of preventing losses from occurring. And that's the true blood lawsuit. This is the big lawsuit that a state has been under for years now uh, regarding uh, individuals who are charged with uh, criminal offenses, have been found not competent to stand trial, and are being sent to a state hospital for restoration services. We have, the state has paid millions and millions of dollars out in that lawsuit. And to me, that lawsuit should have never, ever occurred because we should have been collaborative in understanding that this issue is coming up, worked with the legislature, worked with the governor's office, worked with stakeholders to make sure we are protecting people's rights instead of waiting for a lawsuit and then reacting to it. So I think there are very many different ways of thinking about the advice given to agencies to implement laws so that um, people get the results that they expect. So I know that gets a little bit too much into the policy areas, but I know your readers, your your viewers love that kind of stuff. But um, it really is about that, you know, and when you talk to DCYF, right, this is the Department of Youth, uh, Children and Families, you know, how do they make the decision on when to step in and separate a child from a parent? Um, when do they decide what to do with that child? Who who gives them that advice? It's the attorney general's office. When you take a look at our um, our schools, you know, our special needs kids, which are the kids that are being sent out of state? Who is saying that's okay? And which are the kids that aren't? And who's making those decisions? So that balancing act between providing services and support to Washingtonians versus protecting agency liability, you know, that balancing act is what the attorney general's office does. And I think we really need to be focused on how we're doing that advice, how we're showing up for people of Washington. And I think we have to do it in a manner that puts people first and gives them the resources that they need to be successful. It's an extraordinarily broad position, perhaps more so than a lot of people think. And uh, certainly my viewers and listeners uh, can more than keep up uh, with this. I am uh, always very impressed by by the level of, of questions that, that we receive afterwards. And so I know everybody's right on top of this stuff. And it's certainly in terms of enforcement. I mean, laws are only just, you know, words on pieces of paper without enforcement. And so I, I appreciate you driving that point home. You know, staying on the subject of law. Um, Philosophically, I think a lot of people were not pleased with what they saw as a legislative compromise in the drug possession law that passed during this last special session. I wonder what your thoughts are on what got passed. And is there anything that you would uh, propose amending as attorney general on this? Um, Thank you for that question, because I think I've spent uh, 
a lot of my time since the Blake decision came out from this, our state Supreme Court. Um, and, you know, given my background, I had first done a, a bill back when the decision came out on trying to address drug possession. And um, I've said this many times, I'll continue to say this, the only way you get a law passed in Washington is if you have 25 votes in the Senate, 50 in the House, and you have the governor who's willing to sign it. And so a lot of that is about trying to get to that sweet spot where you can get those votes. So this session, I had dropped a bill that was based on the committee that was created, the Substance Use uh, SORSAC community, uh, committee. I cannot for the life of me remember what all the words of SORSAC mean, but it was a substance use disorder gotcha. um, committee that was tasked with taking a, being evidence-based, taking a look at data, made up of people with lived experience, experts in the field, law enforcement, prosecutors, a wide variety of individuals. And um, I had sponsored the legislation that was based on their recommendations. That legislation did not get the votes. And so what you saw coming out of the Senate was basically a compromise bill that could get the votes needed. Um, and then the final version that passed was a compromise between all four um, parties, right? The Republicans in the House and the Senate, the Democrats in the House and the Senate. And I think what you got, in my opinion, is the least harmful bill that I could work on to get across the finish line. And the reason why I say it was the least harmful bill is because there's a lot of stuff in there that was not data-driven, that is not best evidence, um, but that is what the people were willing to vote for. Well, I ended up voting for that bill, and the reason why I did is because it sets up an infrastructure which does provide access to treatment services and resources at every step of the way. And to me, that infrastructure and building of that infrastructure is critical because once that infrastructure is in place and working, I think we're going to start seeing really good results. Well, you know, taking into account everything you've just said about the, the reality of the makeup of the legislative bodies and having a governor who is willing to sign legislation, I'll just ask you, is there anything that you would want to uh, amend uh, with this particular piece of legislation, say, to propose as attorney general in a, in a future session? You know, um, as an attorney general, I love that that's where you're getting at, just making an assumption that I've already won this. Sure. Um, <laughs> as attorney general, um, I think it would be very important to take a look at the pieces that the agencies are responsible for. So one of the things I will mention, and again, going right into the weeds, because I know that's um, what your listeners um, like, you know, for example, I'll give you the scenario of uh, the, our designated crisis responders um, and civil commitment laws, right? In in our state, you can be civilly committed if you're a danger to yourself or others. And we also have Ricky's Law, where you can have civil commitment for uh, substance use disorder. That's a civil process. And many times our civil process is not that effective because, frankly, of the legal advice individuals are given on what their abilities or capabilities are, what they're able to do. If we want to talk about getting people out of the criminal system, the step down is the civil system. And so to me, it'd be very interesting to see as, as this Blake bill uh, gets implemented on how we're utilizing the civil system 
to prevent people from getting into the criminal system. And I think this is where the advice to the agencies on what implementation looks like is very important. What are the parameters of their authority, um, how they need to show up, and what steps they can take to hold people accountable. And again, we don't have to use the criminal system all the time to hold people accountable. There are different ways of doing so. So I think that culture shift, and I think that culture shift goes hand in hand with the legal advice that's given and the liability that agencies are concerned about when they're implementing new programs. You broadened in an area that I that you anticipated that I was going to go to, which is really ultimately about implementation in, in terms of, of law enforcement. So I appreciate that. But I do want to ask about uh, some of the important laws that got passed on gun safety uh, this year, including there was an assault weapon ban. Uh, there was a law holding gun manufacturers responsible for keeping guns out of the hands of dangerous individuals. And I think uh, a lot of legal experts are expecting these laws are going to get challenged down the road. Again, as Attorney General, uh, how would you think about defending these laws, especially in light of the fact that you you, uh, had a hand in crafting some of them? That is um, a question I really um, love because I'll give the example of the liability law. This is something that I have been looking at for a few years and it was something I was interested in making sure we pursued this year. So we took a look at the analysis that came out of our U.S. Supreme Court and you know they talked a lot about precedence and how far back um, uh, the law goes in terms of being able to justify uh, new laws. And so the liability um, bill that we did, you know, Senator Peterson and I worked on that, and we both had come to the conclusion that we were going to do that based on uh, Washington's nuisance laws that go back to before we became a state. And when you have something that's based on um on a law that's so far back, that is consistent with the U.S. Supreme Court when they are they were addressing the last gun case. And so, you know, you need a lot of smart attorneys to... I was going to say, this is definitely out. a law written by attorneys, for sure, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, you have to make sure you're really doing that analysis and being prepared for it. But, you know, there are attorneys on all sides of the issues, and you'll always find someone who can argue something else. But this is where it's imperative to do your homework, to do the research, and, and be a litigator. You know, I, when I was at the prosecutor's office, like I was in the courtroom um, for so much of that time. And so you have to be able to articulate what you're doing, where you're going, and have the precedence to back you up. And I feel very confident that all the laws that we passed this session um, will, um, will stand up in court. Finally, I just am going to express what I think a lot of people are concerned about, uh, which is the, going into 2024, be the prospect of another Trump presidency or uh, a MAGA candidate uh, winning uh, the presidency and what this would mean in terms of future assaults on our democracy. So I'll just ask you final words, how you think about protecting people uh, in Washington from the sorts of abuses that we saw in, in Trump's first term. How, how are you thinking about that uh, and the way that you would approach that? You know, it's it's Trump's presidency that got me involved in politics, uh, where I felt so deeply that I had to do something to protect Washingtonians from what was happening in our country. And so that is what drove me to go to my first Democratic Party meeting in December 2016. And that is what's driving me to make sure we run that I run for the Attorney General's office. We need people who are willing to fight. We need people who have a track record of delivering. And we need people who are not going to back down. And I think you get all three of those with me. 
Well, Senator Monica Dimgra, it's always such a pleasure, my friend. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Always a pleasure to have this conversation with you. And that'll do it for this week. The executive producer of the show is Kat Pipkin. If you would like to see a video version of this podcast, head to facebook.com slash indivisible podcast. The email address for the show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. Special thanks to Lori Kowal. And as always, my thanks to you for listening. I'm Stephen Cox, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.